I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Today's episode has been sponsored by Pediatrician in Your Pocket at dr-gen.com. Dr. Jennifer Trachtenberg is a mother of three and a 20-plus year pediatrician, board certified, who has called all of her amazing advice and made a series of five-minute videos on everything from feeding and sleeping to safety and all types of parenting issues, which basically every parent out there can use, especially in the middle of the night when you can't reach your pediatrician. So this is like a must do. And she's offering a discount to everyone with code PIP20. PIP20 20 is the code to get 20% off of all of her modules. So definitely go to dr-gen.com and check it out. It's also on a link in my website too, zibbyowens.com. I'm here today with Taru Clavel, who's the author of World Class, One Mother's Journey Halfway Around the Globe in Search of the Best Education for Her Children. She is an education expert, columnist, and sought-after public speaker. She has run her own educational consulting practice since 2010. She's contributed to the Financial Times and the Japan Times, among other publications, and has appeared on CBS This Morning, CNBC's Squawk Box, and other media outlets. She spent over a decade raising her family in Asia, which we're going to talk all about. She has a BA in Asian Studies from Dartmouth College and an MS in Comparative International Education, which she received while living in Asia. She currently lives in New York with her three children. Welcome, True. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It's my pleasure, Zibby. Can you please tell listeners what World Class is about? Yeah, so I educated my kids, my three kids, in the local public schools of Hong Kong, Shanghai, Tokyo, and then Palo Alto. I'm originally from New York City, so it chronicles how we left New York in 2006, and then we're in those cities for, let's see, Hong Kong for four years, Shanghai for two Tokyo for four, and then Palo Alto for two. And unlike the typical expatriate, we enrolled our children in the local public schools. So they had a fully immersive cultural and linguistic experience. And I was an education journalist overseas, and I have a master's in comparative international education. So it's, I would say, half anecdotal and half research-based. And it's basically to empower parents and educators and hopefully legislators too to understand what's going on overseas and what we can be doing differently or what we are doing really well here in the U.S. The book was pretty clear in that we are not doing as good a job here (laughs) as we could be doing. What are some of the things you found in Asia that really stood out to you as just like, wow, this is amazing and we should be doing this? Well, there are a few things. I would say one of the Well, it started actually when we were in Hong Kong and I enrolled my oldest at the time, who was just three years old, at a local public magnet school that was nicknamed the prison. And everybody thought I was crazy for doing it. And they had nice ways of kind of saying I was, you know, absolutely out of my mind. (laughs) But, But I thought, you know, this is an experience where he'll actually learn Mandarin and kind of be able to focus on what's important, which which isn't the the bells and whistles, the brand new desks or chairs or smart board. And it really, I mean, it looked like a prison. It was kind of on this concrete hill. Literally, the hill was made of concrete. And it was this foreboding structure with this courtyard that looked like it's where prisoners are released to walk around. I mean, it was very strange. There's barbed wire on the on the roof. But it was so magical in the sense that the teachers were so on top of the learning, and starting at three years old, the kids had homework. And when you talk to my kids about it now, 
they laugh about it because they say there was so much homework. And in my mind as an adult, there wasn't that much homework. I mean, they literally had one character that they had to copy three times, but it got them into this habit of starting homework at a really young age. So I'd say that was the first thing in terms of where the money is going. And then it continues on when we went to Shanghai when my oldest was in elementary school. And again, bare bones facility. They didn't have running water. There were troughs in the bathrooms, no heat. And he was kept after school one day. And this is a country that has a one-child policy, but I had three kids and I had to do pickups, boom, boom, boom. And he was held after school and I couldn't communicate. Really at that time, it was kind of illegal for me to have a child in a local school because we weren't Chinese residents or, or citizens, I should say. We were legal residents, but not, but didn't have the citizenship that would have allowed us to go into the public school. So I couldn't make a fuss is my point. Mm-hmm. And so he, they kept him after school. And because I was educated predominantly in the U.S., I had this kind of association that he was a discipline case. Why is my little six-year-old, oh my gosh, what did he do? And to make a long story short, he starts crying. He's with his math teacher. And I'm thinking, Oh, did I screw up? I've, I've, you know, poisoned this child against learning in school for the rest of his life. But it really turned out that he was kept after school because he didn't master his daily arithmetic quiz and didn't get a 95%. And the teachers there stay for as long as it takes for the kids to learn. And it turned out kids sometimes stay through dinner and the teachers will stay for, for as long as it takes, really. And only in writing the book did I realize that he was crying not because he was kept after, but because... I was putting so much pressure on him, and it's just a common practice. So to me, people may think, oh, well, does, does he hate math? Do you okay? Was he? And to this day, he's two years ahead in math, and it's one of his favorite subjects. So having that high learning expectation, regardless of your background, was pretty huge. And I can talk about more, more, yeah. more things, okay. but I'm sure yeah. let, you have let other me, questions. Let, one, one thing that I was particularly struck by that you did a compare and contrast Thing, is that in America, we spend a lot of money in the school system on things that essentially don't help education all that much. Receptionists, operators, like fancy gyms and you know, the, the, the trappings of making the school look and feel really nice versus the prison that you described earlier, which yeah. is good. You know, I mean, I think intellectually it's like makes me feel better <laughs> thinking that my kids are not in school in prison all day. However, mm-hmm. you're saying in, in Asia, they spent the money on the teaching. Yes. And how huge a difference that makes in the quality of education. Can you just speak a little to that? Yeah. So I think that is something that we can definitely learn from the Asian system because in the U.S. right now, we have a major recruitment, retention, professional development problem. We can't keep teachers in the field. They stay less than five years. And there's nothing more important in that school than the relationship between the teacher and the student. And there are plenty of studies to show, you know, you don't you, you don't even need a classroom, a physical classroom, and you don't even need 15 kids in the classroom. We can have 30 if the teacher is really, really qualified. So as an example, in Japan, for 38,000 spots in teaching, they get 200,000 applicants. It's as hard to become a teacher in Japan as it is to become a doctor or a lawyer in the U.S. So sometimes I think, okay, imagine if your kids went to school every day and they were being taught by a lawyer or a doctor and just that level of professional training that was required. And I've been to conferences, education conferences, teacher conferences, where states are trying to lower the average undergraduate GPA to become a teacher from a 3.0 to a 2.0. So when you think about that, right, 
it's it's such a shame because what we really should be doing in this country is putting the money towards improving the salaries and recruiting the best and the brightest from undergrad and then retaining them through professional development and giving them career tracks. So what often happens in in thriving economies is, you know, oftentimes you'll, you'll have teachers in this country that can be in the same classroom without any kind of promotion or career trajectory. And they can be in there for 20, 30 years, which for some people works maybe. But for other people who are maybe a little more ambitious, they want to know, okay, I'm on the superintendent path. I'm on the path to become part of the Department of Education. Or maybe I can be a senior master teacher or a mentor. And we don't offer that in this country, whereas in Japan, they do. And something that I think is is pretty astounding is to become an elementary school teacher in Japan, these teachers have to be able to sight, sing, sight, read, and keyboard. They have to be able to swim every kind of stroke in the pool. And before their exams in March, it's this joke, actually, that the teachers in training have to go to the playground and do all these kinds of spins on the bars because that's what they're tested on because they teach all those subjects. And you think about, could that ever happen in the U.S.? Probably not. I mean, I couldn't do all those things. I couldn't I mean, do all those right? things. But see, but to me, I'm, but then I realized. Can you imagine if we all had to like go to a job interview and spin around like the uneven parallel bars I mean, to we, get a job? We, That's like if everyone had to do that to succeed. I know. Crazy. It, it anyway. is. Anyway. But they're the PE teachers too. Yeah. And they're the the classroom teachers and teachers in Japan don't stay in their classrooms in terms of their grades for more than one year at a time. So the second grade teacher can become the sixth grade teacher the next year, the first grade, third grade. So they understand the curriculum entirely and what's coming into their classroom and what they're preparing their kids for. So if we completely did an overhaul, and I and I think it's up to states to be able to do this because in, in, in terms of the education funding model, typical breakdown is 45% from local taxes, 45% from the state, and then 10% from the, from the federal government. The states are the only equalizers. So it's incumbent upon them to really revamp the teachers of education, the credentialing, and then our pay, we have to pay our teachers better to, to get people to stay in the field, to make it competitive as a, as a career opportunity. So if you were to be the president tomorrow, let's Ooh. just say, <laughs> congratulations, here's the Oval Office. What's the, what one thing would you do first? Like, what do you think is, would help biggest bang for the buck? The biggest would be, is, is the equity issue. Because right now, if you have, you can get a better education. And we're only as good as every person that we educate. And I talk about this a lot, and it, it is controversial to some, but the fact that we have districts that are penalized by low tax dollars because the real estate taxes are so low because their properties are, are less valuable, unfortunately, they don't have the support, the financial supports to get the, the best teachers in there, to get better facilities, to get to, to make them safe. And I spent the 2017-18 academic year traveling across the country, and I visited countless schools that are called, let's say, transformation schools, when they're really, that's like a nice name for failing school. And literally, they have on the board the kids' scores that are on a smart board, so they're literally failing. Every single child in that, fail, in that class, their, their names are up there, and in math, reading, and in science, they're all in like the 30 to 40% range. And they see that every single day. I mean, it's, it's, I feel like it's a crime committed against our kids every day. Why would you want to go to school? And these kids are, a lot of them are bored. Some of them at the older levels are on their smartphones the entire class time. And there's, 
not enough done about it. So that's the first thing I would change, the equity and access to quality education funding model and starting that in early childhood education. So really even starting at zero years old because a lot of our families in this country have dual income earning families and the parents aren't around because they need to be earning. So we really have to have better supports in place. Well, if I were the president, I would install you as my like Minister of Education. Or oh, was. thank you. So we, could, we could do some good <laughs> together. <laughs> so let's talk a little about the book itself. Sure. Which was fantastic. Thank you, you. First of all, when you were going off on all these adventures, in the back of your head, did, it, did you think to yourself, this is going to be a great book? Like, did you ever think that? I have a to little? be totally honest. When I met, I met a book editor in the fall of 2014, and it never occurred to me at that point. I was I was an education journalist, and then she was talking about, I mean, it was still after its prime, but Eat, Pray, Love. Mm-hmm. And she said this, you know, three-part, people can grasp this. And I was like, oh, I have a book. I have Hong Kong, Shanghai, and Tokyo. So that was the first time that the idea was seeded, but it only really came to fruition in 2016, when I came back to the U.S. and my kids were in Palo Alto public schools. And I love how the book was not just a treatise of education reform and what we should do and like a political anything, but it was really your story and your story mm-hmm. of being a mom and taking your kids through the systems and what you learned and all this stuff, which is what I'm like most excited to talk to you about. Oh, good. And you also, all your chapters were named after TV shows. Yes. From when both of us were growing up, <laughs> which was fantastic. And you said you had spent a lot of time watching TV growing up, a child of a single mom. Tell us a little more about your background growing up and how maybe this put you on the path to be an education advocate. Well, yeah. So I grew up in, in the New York, Connecticut area, and my mom was let's see, 25 years younger than my dad. And the fact that they got together at all was kind of miraculous because my mom was in Japan and her father fought against my American father in World War II. So I think oh I was this kind of, I don't want to say accident, but not, not a very common product. And then my mom came to the U.S., but she was also very different because of her generation. She was born right after World War II. And women of her generation were typically not that highly educated because it was considered a stigma because you would never get married. But she did very, very well at her high school. It was one of the most competitive high schools. And then she went off to college in Tokyo. She grew up in Osaka. And that that was that was like she was cursed, like she was never going to get married. So she kind of found her ticket out of Japan when she met my father, but he was older and he wasn't well, so he passed away. So for the most part, I was raised by this single Japanese immigrant, and I was an only child. And our home was very culturally Japanese, and we spoke Japanese at home. So, you know, and everybody else in my schools or at the time, like what I thought was just very American. And then I spent my summer vacations and most of my holidays in Japan. So during elementary school, I went to school in Japan during my summer vacation because their school their summer vacation begins the end of July. So I always had this kind of bicultural comparative international education background that really informed my whole, like you said, trajectory. And I was fascinated by education because things I saw were done so, so differently. Even today, I feel like the way math is taught in our schools is so controversial, especially since the Common Core was implemented. And often I feel like the Asian systems, the East Asian systems get criticized for being too rote. And I can tell you Math class in Japan growing up was really hard because 
everything was a word problem. Once you understood the concept, it was all word problems. And that wasn't the way I was educated in the U.S. school. And at one point, even for my oldest son, when I went to his desk when we were in Shanghai, his desk was just a mess. And I was going through all the papers and it was annoying because everything's crumpled up. And, <laughs> and, I, lo- and I can't read Chinese. So I said, James, what, what is this? What is this book? And he goes, Mama, it's my math book. And there weren't even enough numbers in there for me to decipher that it was a math book because in first grade, there were that many word problems. Wow. So when you talk about the application of of the content that you learn, so I I grew up with this. So I grew up with kind of understanding both sides. So I don't even ask, I don't even remember what the question you asked was at this point. (laughs) No, I just like hearing about it. (laughs) I'm Um, like, where did I, where did I leave off? No, and you, you also said when you were growing up how you missed a lot of field trips because your mom couldn't even read the language that they sent home the letters in. And so you felt like you were constantly like an outsider and missing out. Oh, totally. The worst was in first grade when I missed field day. In that, and I was I was one of those tomboys who loved winning races. And I remember showing up and it was already midway through field day. And just Aww. my mom had no idea, but that happened pretty regularly. So it was kind of funny that then I put my kids into school systems where I couldn't necessarily understand what was going on. So I didn't want the same experience. I didn't want my kids to have the same experiences. So I hired college kids to come and help me decipher and translate all the notices and I made sure I was there. And even during, there's a lot of required parent education. In Japan, which Japanese is my first language, so this wasn't much of an issue. But in Japan, you have to literally opt out of parent education. So you have to write a letter if you can't show up. But in China, where I couldn't speak Mandarin, I would actually bring a bilingual friend of mine to sit through. I mean, one time it was three hours long and I felt so badly for her. But to translate everything that was going on so that my kids wouldn't be handicapped by my handicap. Yeah. Was there ever any pushback from your kids? Like the moving and the different cultures, or this just is like what life is like for them? Yeah, it's pretty much, I mean, they didn't know any different. So I, at some point, I forget, I think we were, maybe it was in Tokyo for two, we were in Tokyo, like, okay, when are we moving again? It was just a way of life, but I have made it very clear that now we are home. We are not moving again. And I'm really happy about that. Well, I feel like this huge relief that one of your kids has ended up at a school where one of my kids is, which means that at least I have not totally messed up the education of one of my four children. No, I I think there are opportunities. And that's something that I hope comes across, at least towards the end of world class. It's it's because I traveled through the U.S. to different schools. One of my final chapters is called Cheers, based after the TV show Cheers. And it's a testament to the amazing schools and educators that are out there. And I mean, there was, there was one school I visited in LA and it was their middle schoolers taking AP physics in one term and they're getting fives out of fives on, you know, five out of five on the AP exam. There are, you mentioned in terms of, you know, how the money is being spent. There's Mm -hmm. a school I visited in DC that has one of the lowest cost per pupil spending budgets. And the head of the school said very clearly, look at my front office. I have two admin for this entire high school. And there are other schools where the principal of the school will do anything to champion for his or her students and will go to whatever level it takes to find the funding to find literally parents in that are in the school who may be professors, who have an area of expertise to come in and teach a class and just leverage as many resources as possible. And now I will go back. Now I remember your question about the TV shows. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yes. I have yes. to just say, yeah. so because my home was so Japanese, mm-hmm. I learned so much from these TV shows. So that's why I named each chapter after a TV show from pretty much the 70s and 80s, although there's some from the 60s that are thrown in. So 
I mean, my favorite was, sorry, I have to plug because I think it is funny and I want to hear your reaction to this. But so the Gilligan's Island. Yeah. When I landed in Hong Kong, I called it Gilligan's Island landing on an island with a strange cast of characters. You know, because I was like, oh my gosh, this place was so foreign. Or when we first arrived in Shanghai and I called it Mission Impossible because I thought I was going to die. Like every day, it was just such a difficult place. Because this was in 2010 when it was still a cash-based society and things were not as smooth as they are now. Well, it was very, it was a very clever way to attack such like an intellectual topic with something that like, you know, made it sort of light and fun. Well, I appreciate that. It's a good blend. How do you feel about, I mean, I don't want to really get into screen time, but you obviously watched a lot of TV. I feel like I watched a lot of TV growing up. I don't know. It wasn't even like a thing. Like, do Mm. you feel like education is interfered with too much by screen time or do you let your kids watch TV? Well, TV, I think it can be okay. It just depends on what it is. I think the content, I think what we considered, I mean, even movies, like the movies that were rated R back then, I mean, I think today would be close to G. I mean, it's like, it's gotten so different. So I think, and it's hard to monitor because kids have so much technology Mm -hmm. anyway, and they're going to watch the movies before you allow them to watch them anyway. So I think it's just really important to have as many pro, like, be proactive about your conversations with your kids, because you're going to see it. Yeah. My husband, Kyle, and I were having this debate because my older son wants YouTube, and I'm like, but how can I give him a computer with YouTube unrestricted if I'm not around to see it? He's going to download, like, he's going to watch, like, X-rated movies. Yeah, and Kyle's yeah. like, they don't have X-rated movies anymore. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? Like, he's like, they're not going to, like, card you at the door and turn you away. They don't make those. And I was like, he's like, he, if he wants to find it, he'll just find he'll just it online. Find anyway, it. whatever. So I'm like, I'm back in this whole like 1980s, like trying to get into a P213 movie in my head. So. <laughs> I'm like. But my son, my middle one actually yeah. did go to a movie theater with his friends and they would try to go see an R movie and they were turned away. Oh, good. Okay. But of course, you know what they did? They bought tickets to another movie and, and they snuck in. Yeah. So there you <laughs> At least, I mean, people, I mean. At least there's still are movie theaters. I mean, yes, I I agree. I I agree. (laughs) But getting off topic. So the publishing process, I know we've kind of been talking about this off record, off the record, (laughs) but you had this idea sort of in 2014 to make this into a book. Yeah. Then you went on and lived this exciting, international, amazing life and learned all this stuff. Tell me about sitting down to write this book. Where were you? Like, how long did it take you? Did you enjoy the writing process? What did you not enjoy about this whole situation? So Bring me to the current day. I know. So I feel like it's when they say everybody pays for it when you have a baby. Like if your pregnancy has been smooth and afterwards you go through. And to me, the process, which I think is a complete anomaly to getting a book deal, was seamless, which I think is almost completely unheard of. I, I pounded the pavement. I got my agent. My book proposal went to auction. It was like this bizarre thing. But then... I mean, I've been, it hasn't been smooth sailing since then, I don't think. But basically, I get the book deal. And I, you know, I was living in the middle of Silicon Valley where things happen instantaneously. So I I, I signed the book deal and they said, okay, you have a year to write the book. And I was like, a year? What am I going to do with a year? To me, it was, it could have been 20 years from now. But I did take that year and I had all these pressures because I'd never written a book before. I was used to writing articles and I had deadlines and I knew I met those deadlines. I was that like annoying person who, if it's due tomorrow, it's on the editor's desk by 8 a.m. that day, you know? And, but then when you have a year, suddenly you have to have the crazy self-discipline of, I mean, it, it was really a challenging process. And then I had in my mind, 
okay, well, you know, I have to wake up and I have to put my kids, I have to get them to school and I have to sit at my desk and write and I have to be productive and I have to, you know, and you do the math all day. If I write 10 pages this day and then this is how many, it never worked that way. I mean, half the thing was written at 2 a.m. in the car when the kids were at soccer. I mean, it was the most non-disciplined, like disciplined process. And my book was due, the manuscript was due end of August 2000. When was it? So 2018. And I had a complete meltdown in July. And I thought it was, I mean, I can't use expletives, but you know, a pile of you know what. And I thought this is horrific, horrendous, the worst thing ever. I call my agent and she's like, you're right on time. This is exactly when I get a call from my authors. Actually, you're you're two weeks, like it was later, early or something like that. And I go, well, now what am I going to do? This is terrible. I was like, I'm just going to cut my losses. I'm done. I'm not, this is just, it's, it's just the most disgusting piece of whatever. And that's when it kicked into gear. I basically rewrote the whole thing in the next month. And it was... It's so much better. But at the time, my life was falling apart. I mean, it was literally, I remember sitting in the lobby of a hotel crying (laughs) because it was the nearest place I could find to just sit down. And it was, and that's actually, believe it or not, when the idea of the TV titles came into play. It wasn't until the very kind of last minute. And then it kind of got my momentum going. And I thought, okay, this is good. And then I spent the next year editing. And then the book came out end of summer 2019. But the process was, I don't think, I mean, it was far from smooth. Yeah, but I, I, I guess I made it. But I think everybody has their own process. And I think, if anything, it's just don't have so many preconceived notions of how it has to be done. Because let's be, I mean, we're both moms. Like, that's always going to be my number one priority. And if my child needs me, I'm going to be there. I'm not going to be at my desk writing the book. And I also felt like I had an excuse because every time my child needs me, I'm like, this is ethnographic research for my <laughs> book. You know I mean? So I was like, okay, it's like a write-off, <laughs> which I probably is an, is an excuse too many times. But yeah, it was, yeah. But it, it, it wasn't, I mean, there are parts of it that have been challenging in terms of book publishing since it came out in terms of just, there's so much, and I didn't know this because it went so smooth until then, but people move around so much in the publishing business. And I had heard about it, but it's almost like, yeah, that doesn't mean anything to me. And then literally almost everybody who was behind my book left their companies Um. when the book came out. And that's really hard because I'm like, hello, I'm a neophyte. I don't know what I'm doing. I need all the help I can get releasing a book. So it's been, you just need that toughness. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Any parting advice? Let's say people are listening, they're reading your book, they're fed up with the way the system is. Mm. What can we do to help things in the United States right now? Like even just one person, is there anything we can do? Is like, yeah, what, is anything or, or should we just like sit back and watch things crumble further? No, 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 don't do that. I think the way I think about it is there are a few macro things that, that require systemic change that may not change for a generation, more than a generation. So those are things like the teacher training or the equity issues, the education governance and changing the priority of, of where education is in our country. So something that I think about is when Xi Jinping gave his was comparable to the State of the Union address in China, he talked about education, or he mentioned it 30 times. And during the last Democratic presidential debate, the word education came up zero times. So that requires a huge cultural shift. So what I like to tell parents and teachers is what can you do every day? And I break it up into 
The first thing is having your expectations and mission statement very clear in your home. So talk about what is an education? Is it about socialization, sports, academic outcomes? What is your academic expectation? Is it a 95%? Is it the 60% that schools require? What are you expecting? If the, if the school doesn't teach something, are you going to teach it to your kids? Whether it be, I guess, memorizing your multiplication tables, which a lot of schools don't require anymore. But maybe if you do, you have to do it at home. Grammar, spelling. How many books do they read? How, what, what is writing? The whole child, the community, getting all those things. Like Define it in your home. And something that I tell parents that I think is an easy takeaway is, what are you modeling for them? What are you talking about? Because if all you're talking about is sports, they're going to get validation and they're going to think love from their parents by being really good at sports. But if you talk about how was this class and how are your friendships, you're showing them what's important and they will want to meet your expectations. It's literally like a pie chart. Figure out how much time you're spending doing what and talking about what. So that's one actionable thing. And another thing is please limit the technology because there's there's too much research now that shows the more exposure our kids have to technology, especially starting at an early age, the lower their academic outcomes. It's associated to all kinds of anxiety, social, emotional issues. So as a society, we definitely have to take a step back, but also as parents, we have to limit it until these kids have the self-discipline to be able to monitor it. And they just don't if they're under 12 or 13 years old. And there's lots of research now that shows that the best indicator of academic success isn't IQ. It's actually self-discipline. And technology is the antithesis to instilling self-discipline. So those are some things that I would say. I don't know if you knew this, or you probably did, and I'm probably the last one to know this, but (laughs) I was looking over one of my kids' shoulders when they were playing a game, Mm -hmm. like from an app. Mm -hmm. Every two seconds, there's another ad for another app. Yeah, And you have to like play it to get to the, anyway, I spent like half an hour looking at this and now I've deleted every game on everybody's device in the whole, and I'm like, we are not playing games anymore. There are no games. Not that everybody was sitting around playing games all day, but like even 20 minutes, even like whatever. I I can't, it's like so bad. So anyway, I mean, this is like a two day old thing for me, but but you know, it's true. But it's true. I mean, it's so like, true. The I product mean, placement that our yeah, kids, it's insane. I had no idea. Yeah, it's, it's very I mean, sneaky. It's it very will, sneaky. I mean, the fact that my 10-year-old daughter can tell you what Cialis is for and every other kind of medication because <laughs> we'll just be watching family-friendly TV. And and I mean, it's so funny. She's like, oh, you have dry skin? She'll give you the solution. <laughs> I'm like, so funny. This is, this is different. This is not the way we were raised, you know? And then, and then you know, at the end, they say, all the caveats, like, you know, if you're allergic to it, you could have a heart disease. Right. You could do this. And, this medication and my daughter's like, death. yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, it's a risk. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I'm like, oh my gosh, my daughter's now going to be investing in, in pharma tech, in pharma stock. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, okay, wonderful. <laughs> Parting advice to aspiring authors. And this is something I have to tell myself. So I'm, I'm preaching to myself as I say this, love the process and it's really hard, but I would say don't wait for the accolades to come in because you have to love the process and be patient. And the other thing I would say, in this I'm learning to get your network, your support network, because you have to find the people who will champion you and know the answers to things when when you don't know what they are. Because there have been so many times in the last few months where, wait, this happened and I don't understand it. And you just have, okay— here are 10 people I can call. Who's going to be available? Who has the answer? 
because we've all been through it. And I find, so this is one thing I did go, I, I went to a lot of education conferences. I took writing classes, a writing conference that I went to in 2014, there was this keynote speaker who was a best-selling author. And he said something that I, that has always resonated with me. He goes, it doesn't matter if you're successful or not in this business, there are no a-holes. You can't be successful if you are one. And now that I'm a little further in the process, it's because it's so humbling and you do want to help everybody else. So finding, finding those people, I think, is, is crucial. Because you're, you're solitary. Like when you're writing, you're alone. So, you know, it's important to get out there. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for coming on Mom's Sound Time to Read Books. Oh, well, thank you so much, Zippy. Thank you. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, the award-winning podcast. Today's episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books was sponsored by Pediatrician in Your Pocket by Dr. Jennifer Trachtenberg, dr-gen.com. Enter code PIP20, PIP20, for 20% off of these can't-miss modules that will make your parenting life so much easier. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Bye.